Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here. Welcome to The Daily Evolver and to a new episode of Post-Progressive Inquiries, where my co-hosts Steve McIntosh and I talk with people who are co-creating the next stage of human development. Steve McIntosh is, of course, the founder of the Institute for Cultural Evolution with its post-progressive project and author of many books on integral theory, including his latest, Developmental Politics. Our guest today is David Story, a professor of philosophy from Boston College. David discovered integral thinking outside of academia, as did most of us, but is now bringing its principles to bear on his teaching. Whether the subject is history, religion, or the emerging ethics of environmentalism, David's focus is on helping his students to learn how to communicate and navigate across worldviews, which is very important and very integral. David also hosts the podcast Wisdom at Work, where he talks with philosophers who have gone beyond the ivory tower to build careers outside of academia. David, Steve, and I cover a lot of territory in this conversation. In the first part, we consider how academia itself is evolving, particularly in its ever so slight warming to developmental theory. In the second half of our conversation, we discuss how to bring more cultural intelligence to humanity's climate challenge and highlight David's new essay in the post-progressive post, Why We Will Grow Together or Grow Apart. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Post-Progressive Post with me, Steve McIntosh, and David Story. Thanks for Well, I, I guess I'd start by asking you, David, like, unlike me, your father obviously did not forbid you from going into <laughs> philosophy. And so you are a young philosopher uh, in academia. And that's just really interesting to me. And I think it is to a lot of our listeners. And mm. so I, I'm curious as to how you found your way there, and then also how you found your way into Integral. And I also want to know how Integral is landing in academia. And um, so those are that's sort of the category of my questions. Great. So my dad not only did not forbid me to major in philosophy, he encouraged it. Uh, in fact, I have a vivid memory. Uh, I think it was sophomore year. I was driving back spring semester with my roommate to college and we were pulling out of the driveway. Lived, I grew up in New Jersey. And it was around that time that it was probably becoming clear that I had been bitten by the philosophy bug. Uh, I had taken a course my freshman year here at BC, Boston College actually, where I teach called Perspectives on Western Culture. And we read Plato and Aristotle and big chunks of the Bible and Augustine and Aquinas and Machiavelli and Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and Marx. And, you know, it, it, just a <laughs> big, a few. <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. And the list goes on a big burly, you know, grand tour of the Western tradition. And I had a very great teacher, a very intense Jesuit. Uh, and uh, he was serious and he treated what we thought seriously. Uh, and I felt really challenged and summoned uh, to challenge myself. 
And uh, I started psychology major. I was interested in how people think. I thought maybe I wanted to be a shrink. Uh, pre-med, the pre-med didn't last long. And the psychology didn't last long because I found that there was more that was psychologically rich in my philosophy courses than in my psychology courses. So I pretty quickly started to gravitate toward a major in philosophy. But as I was pulling out of the driveway that day, uh, my dad, I remember him saying, waving and saying, become a philosopher. Oh, my God. <laughs> Good for literally, you. literally what he said. Wow. That's great. Uh, so. And you did. And I and I'm uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm still at it. So. So that was a little bit of how I, I got into philosophy. Uh, you know, I just took course after course and you know, I was just hungry and yada, yada, yada. I was applying to graduate school. Uh, but about halfway through college, I was, so this would have been summer of my junior year, summer after my junior year, I was working at a bookstore in downtown Boston called Brentano's when that was still a chain. And, you know, I... I used every moment that I had to read. Uh, I was, I'm not a customer service, you know, retail guy. And, you know, I got in trouble at work all, all the time for reading, but I kept passing as I was stocking books. I kept passing in the new age section. Uh, I'm sure this is a common story. <laughs> These books by this guy named Ken Wilbur. And I, something just drew me to them. And I would, you know, peek at them, you know, while I had a, a break or while I should have been doing other things. And I was just like, I, I just want to go into this. And I, I started right, I dove into the deep end with sexology, spirituality. There was something about it that I was just, this needs to be reckoned with. And uh, <laughs> my reaction 30 pages into that book was, was like the reaction that one of my Zen teachers, Robert Kennedy, uh, who's a, both a Jesuit and a Zen uh, Roshi, had when, when he was first sent to, by the Jesuits to teach uh, in Japan, and he went to a lecture by Meizumi Roshi, who became his teacher later. And his reaction upon coming out of that was, I don't know what this is, but this is it. Uh, that was the feeling that I had uh, with, uh, with Ken's work. And uh, I've been looking for a better story since, a better philosophical account, uh, and I haven't really found one. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've, I've kind of you know, been with it ever since. So that was my intro to Integral and, you know, just read everything after that uh, and so on. But in terms of your question, uh, how is Integral being received in academia? Well, I think things have changed over the last 20 years. Not a great deal, uh, but a little bit of disturbance in the force. And to give you a sense for how they've changed as a marker, when I had my, you know, Integral I don't want to use the word conversion, but you know, when I started getting interested in, in that and becoming convinced that it had a lot to offer, I approached one of my philosophy professors and I asked him if I could do a presentation and my final paper for the seminar on it. And he's very open-minded, very broad-minded, pluralistic thinker. And he let me do it and it was good. And he said, oh, I might learn something. He had read Grace and Grit and found it quite moving. But he said, now listen, when you apply to graduate school, it's great to have an intellectual passion and everything, but keep the Wilbur stuff out of it. And I actually thought that was the right advice at the time for me personally. Uh, and so I 
decided to work on Heidegger and Nietzsche. I was interested in environmental philosophy and nihilism. Uh, we could get into <laughs> how those two how those two might be related My later goodness. if if it's uh, if it's you know uh, if it if it works. But during my research, I encountered the work of Michael Zimmerman, uh, who, you know, as know, is a former fellow uh, with uh, the Institute for Cultural Evolution um, and was involved with the Integral Institute. And he had made this shift from, you know, Heidegger to Integral mid-career after he had sort of, you know, tenure and, you know, credibility in the community. And I reached out to Michael and I told him my proposal and I had never, no, I didn't know him from Adam. And he emailed me back within an hour and said, your proposal sounds great. I would love to be on your dissertation committee. And so he was a sort of link for me between the academic world and uh, integral. And so I kind of realized after a while that I was playing this long game of establishing myself uh, in the conventional terms in the academy, while also keeping an eye eye on and continuing to learn uh, integral philosophy. But the reason that I say that it's shifted uh, is one, there's actually been a volume co-edited by, by Sean Esbjorn Hargens and uh, Michael Schwartz, uh, an academic philosopher. It's an anthology of essays on integral philosophy, sort of in dialogue with continental philosophy, uh, which for your listeners, sort of continental philosophy versus analytic philosophy is sort of like the Republicans and Democrats uh, within academic philosophy in terms of different styles or approaches or traditions. Uh, so there are there are people who are you know working on integral or, or interfacing you know more mainstream academic philosophers with integral work. So it's starting to happen. The other thing I would say too is that postmodernism is deader than dead, uh, and I think people are looking for a better framework to make sense uh, of our reality. And so the you might say the exhaustion of green postmodernism. In, in a lot of intellectual quarters and academic philosophical quarters is creating some space for, I think, some more openness and receptivity to, uh, to integral-ish stuff. So there's plenty more to say, but that maybe gives you a, a general yep. sense. For, yeah. I, I'd be curious, David, as to why you were warned off of integral. What, what is the rub with you mm. know, Wilbur integral and academia? Yeah. Well, two things come to mind. Uh, the first, I think that uh, my uh, former professor, who is now somewhat bizarrely my colleague, uh, he still teaches here. Uh, and as a side note, I bumped into him last year and he said, David, listen, I remember that conversation we had 20 years ago where I warned you off of Wilbur. <laughs> wow. And I was wrong. And I was wrong. Oh, for heaven's sakes. And he said, he said, uh, I was reading this, this uh, Christian, um, contemplative Christian writer, Cynthia Bourgeau, who's adapted uh, uh, Keating's contemplative prayer or centering prayer, who draws on, uh, on integral stuff, uh, as well as Richard Rohr. And he said, I was reading this and they were drawing on Wilbur and it makes so much sense. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to tell you 20 years ago. Yeah. But, um, but I think it, it, it I don't. I, don't think he was wrong. I think it was the right advice. And I think he was warning me against that for the sake of my future career in the sense that if you're not writing about, you know, what the conversation is, what scholars are talking about, which is a, you know, relatively limited range of scholars uh, or, or traditional philosophers recognized in the canon, 
as well as sort of what are the hot topics. You know, it's one of the uh, problems with academic discourse. We could get into this later if, if it's relevant, is that, you know, the terms of uh, what's worth talking about are set by a relatively few number of people. And so that artificially limits the conversation and what aspiring philosophers uh, are incentivized to direct their attention and research toward. So in terms of me establishing a career in academia, it was the right advice because nobody mm -hmm. was talking about Ken Wilber. Uh, and I think he still had the, uh, and in some cases for some people still does have sort of the connotation of, you know, uh, pop philosophy or, or, or new age philosophy, um, or spiritual woo woo, uh, is so one way I would say is that in terms of beyond, uh, why that was not, why that was good advice for me, but why he had to give that advice because of the overall structure of the discipline is two things. I mentioned continental philosophy and analytic philosophy before. I think that those pretty closely track uh, postmodern green and modern orange in terms of worldview orientations. And so the developmental feature, uh, of, uh, integral, you know, is obviously repellent to, to green, uh, even though, you know, many seminal thinkers like Hegel, uh, it's, it's an intensely developmental, uh, you know, ontology that Hegel has. Um, and the second is for the modernists, the more analytic philosophers, is the you know recognition of interiorities uh, in integral philosophy that it, you know is a problem for them, as well as any kind of spiritual worldview in general. So those are two, I think, forces within academia and academic philosophy that you know were are, are resistant, even to some to some extent, to uh, to integral stuff. Yeah, great. Yeah, well, let me um, let me follow up on that then, and ask about. Well, I mean, we're using this term "integral," kind of throwing it around a little bit. In um, in my 2007 book, "Integral Consciousness," I have a 45 page chapter where I detail how integral philosophy is not simply uh, Wilberian philosophy, mm -hmm. and how we have this uh, starting really with Hegel and the idealists, and and taking lots of different turns along the way. This this uh, this basic canon of developmental philosophy, right, and which includes other geniuses like uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin and Alfred North Whitehead, mm -hmm. and the, the you know part of it we might say the the allergy to non professional philosophy or, or non academic philosophy like Wilbur has written and you know Teilhard and and many of the um, many of the founders of what we now identify as integral philosophy have this spiritual orientation. In other words, I would define it as um, a philosophy that tries to come to grips with the, the reality that the universe is evolving, right? That since the Big Bang, everything's been evolving. How to, how to make philosophical sense of that. And it's impossible to do without some notion of interiority, without some recognition of the reality of values, although you don't have to go to value objectivity, but the, you know, the sort of analytical idea that values are really subjective, that the, the evolutionary narrative um, uh, refutes that rather roundly. So I guess what I'm saying is if, if we were to label this, this branch of philosophy as developmental and you know, maybe use the term integral interchangeably, 
and you feel that you know green postmodernism. I mean, I'm in some ways I'm happy to hear that you say that it's dead, uh, and yet it seems like critical theory has taken over all the major uh, universities in America as a kind of new religion. And so mm-hmm. maybe uh, Boston College being based, you know, uh, in, in mm-hmm. the sort of traditional uh, Catholic uh, background is more resistant to that, but maybe not. So this idea that developmental is some understanding of a developmental philosophy is kind of where professional philosophy could go if it got it right. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that as a, um, you know, I mean, it seems like the barrier to it, they're each one. So continental philosophy uh, might object to the whole developmental idea. The whole notion of cultural evolution is, is, is somewhat anathema to many critical discourses. Um, or is it more on the spiritual side, recognizing the reality of interiors and the, the spirituality that goes with that, uh, I imagine is more objected to on the analytical side. Um, do you think transcending both of those potential roadblocks is, is a potential for the future? Yeah. Wow. Uh, so my short answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot that I, I thought of, uh, while you were, while you were speaking. Um, one thing I'll preface this by is, uh, how is my own institutional situation uh, shaping my view of these things. And, and one thing you mentioned in particular is really important. You know, I teach at a, a Catholic uh, Jesuit university. And so, yeah, I mean, in integral terms, sort of the, you know, traditionalism has more of a, a home at my school and, you know, at Catholic institutions in general. So I think uh, that is a sort of built-in buffer uh, against mean green hijacking classrooms uh, or, you know, campus life in, in general. So that's that's really important. Um, the second thing is you mentioned, and one of the things I loved about that book uh, that I read when I was still in graduate school, your 2007 book, is that it situates integral as part of a broader tradition that precedes Ken, uh, which I think he himself would recognize. Uh, and I think that uh, you know if he's right, then this is you know a this is a, a, an independent animal <laughs> uh, that uh, is emerging increasingly. Uh, and so uh, I think a, a less Wilbur-centric framing of integral might be one way to uh, you know, disseminate it more uh, among uh, the academic philosophical community. Um, and one thing I'll say, you know, is is you're absolutely right. You know, whether we're talking about Hegel and the German idealists, uh, or Whitehead, uh, or Bergson, uh, or Teilhard, you know, there's a line. There is a tradition there that you can absolutely trace. And uh, one of the unfortunate things is, you know, Whitehead, for instance, it famously advanced process philosophy. It's just one of those things that has been sort of a minority report in 20th century philosophy, as it has presently been understood, uh, Charles Sanders Peirce, uh, who uh, Wilbur has you know, drawn uh, crucial uh, ideas from, is another one of those minority reports uh, in the history of Western philosophy. Um, so uh, I, I think David, that's- David, what do you mean by minority report? Oh, I mean, uh, you know, the sort of there's a, uh, uh, there's an establishment story uh, which would be the majority report, uh, which would 
you know, for continental philosophy, it would be uh, Heidegger and Foucault and Derrida, you know, as major 20th century philosophers. And then for the analytic tradition, it would be Ludwig Wittgenstein uh, and Bertrand Russell uh, and Quine uh, and, you know, a, a series of thinkers. And then there's sort of the lesser, the lesser deities, uh, as it were, you know, who some people work on, but who, you know, you're, you're kind of taking a risk if you if you write about that person for your dissertation or your focus of your research because it's not in high demand. And so there's a way in which, as it were, the market dynamics of academia can uh, unduly sideline important thinkers and important ways of thinking. Uh, and so the the sort of uh, proto-integral thinkers uh, that were early integral thinkers that, that Steve is referring to, I think are some of those sidelined figures, uh, with the exception of Hegel, who, uh, <laughs> is still seriously studied, but is often, uh, but his, his sort of, you might say, uh, big spiritual view of the cosmos, I think has not really taken that seriously, uh, by most, uh, academic philosophers because, you know, they don't want to claim any grand, uh, spiritual, cosmic uh, narrative. They don't want to be attached to that because, you know, that sounds a little too woo-woo and it can be hard to defend. And, you know, uh, the psychology of academics is another obstacle here as well, you know, which is, you know, being worried about being criticized for uh, coloring outside the lines and, you know, making claims you can't back up and so on. So, uh, those are a couple other things. One last thing I would say is about critical race theory uh, that that Steve uh, mentioned, um, and how this this mode of you know uh, uh, intellectual discourse uh, has become very common. Uh, I actually think that among academic philosophers, there is an appreciation for uh, the ways it can be used as a blunt instrument uh, and the ways it can be used as a, a very critical instrument, uh, and. I think it's a lot of uh, humanities folks, whether in history or sociology or uh, anthropology, who, uh, this may not be fair, but I think who are a little more carried away uh, by the, the political winds uh, than uh, the philosophers uh, who know some more of the history of this, this way of thinking. That's just my sense. Uh, I could be wrong about that. Um, so when I say... Uh, Postmodernism is dead. Uh, I don't so much mean a, a commitment to uh, progressive values politically, uh, but more uh, a certain method of uh, of doing philosophy, of uh, deconstruction and poststructuralism that was more in vogue uh, among uh, continental philosophy scholars in the '90s and 2000s. I think that's uh, running a little a little dry. And more philosophers, as a last point, are becoming more public facing. Uh, and realizing we got to sort of get out our heads out of the sand or, you know, out of the ivory tower and, you know, use our quote unquote critical thinking skills in order to help people sort out how crazy uh, our public discourse has become. So those are just a few things that came up. Um, but uh, we could go into any of those in detail if you want. I'm just interested in hearing more about all of this. Yeah, you know, honestly. Yeah. I mean, just. I'm, I'm very interested in the, the, you know, the evolution of academic philosophy. You know, what's going on? We, we see the evolution of our culture. I'm fascinated that you, you, you say that 
postmodern philosophy is running out of gas in you know, academic philosophy. And that's, that's interesting. And so what's coming in, you know, what's next? Is it more integral or is there something else coming in? And I'm just curious as to the landscape. So as I started to mention, one of the things that's really coming in has to do with the generational turnover. Uh, and that is, you know, more, more millennial uh, thinkers sort of, you know, becoming professors and, you know, editing journals and you know, starting to just basically gain more power over the conversation. And you know, this is a this is a generation who grew up for the most part, you know, on the internet uh, with Facebook uh, and with the you know increasingly uh, concerning uh, global problems uh, from from climate change to you know the post truth uh, you know information ecology that we are in to political polarization. Uh, and so on. And, you know, a, a generation literally more plugged in uh, where you, you can't keep the, the world at arm's length and uh, experimenting and being conversant in forms of media, such as podcasting, uh, such as blogging, such as, you know, writing for popular audiences, uh, that the boundary between so-called academic philosophy and, and public philosophy is starting to weaken. And actually, one thing that's changing is the leadership in the uh, American Philosophical Association is now working to find a way to incentivize young scholars to uh, work on more publicly engaged projects uh, in the form of, you know, how do we count, uh, you know, running a blog that is viewed by, you know, uh, 50,000 people uh, a month as you know, is that equal to you know placing an article in an obscure journal that's going to be read by fifty people? Uh, <laughs> I should think so. So how to how to how to uh, measure impact uh, and factor that into the norms that govern the profession and that you know incentivize people to to work on certain things. So part of it is generational turnover uh, that's incentivizing people to do more publicly engaged philosophy, and uh, you know. Uh, most of that that I've seen is not integral, uh, per you know, uh, explicitly. Uh, but I think it is in a in a sort of indirect way, uh, in that, you know, one of the I think super skills with uh, education generally, forget about integral, <laughs> is uh, you know, as Plato says, you know, once the philosopher has escaped the cave. Uh, the world of shadows and appearances and grasp the truth, the challenge is how to return to the cave and communicate to other people using shadows in order to turn them away from the shadows or just using skillful means in the Buddhist phrase. And so, you know, writing for a public audience, I've always thought is that kind of challenge. You know, how do you, how do you distill what you've, you've seen or what you think you've seen into a, a language that's going to be accessible uh, while also not talking down to people who you know, might not have that, that expertise or that background. Uh, so it's how to balance those, those two things uh, of you know, height of, of realization, but also breadth of accessibility and communication. And so more, more philosophers, more academics are doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that has a, a healthy kind of... Um, uh, I hate to use the phrase consciousness raising, but let's go ahead and do it. Uh, consciousness raising effect uh, on more people. Uh, 
Yeah. So that's that's part of what I see. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. All right. Well, let me let me follow up on that then. Um, I personally want to see departments of philosophy and and you know a- academic philosophers such as yourself preserved as you know a discrete category uh, that can look you know ultimately as upstream uh, in the culture as possible. Mm-hmm. But I'm seeing more and more as these lines are being blurred to to pick up a little bit on what you said that rather than thinking about well who are the who are the most prominent voices in philosophy right now and where might academic philosophy go right in the future while being an interesting question unto itself. Let me ask you whether you agree with this characterization and that is one of the major um, philosophical tasks of our time in history, whether it's being undertaken by professional philosophers or not, I would argue is this, this beginning to understand that something comes after the postmodern. And, I, and I, when I mean postmodern, I'm not just talking about, you know, the French post-structuralists. I'm talking about this larger worldview that's emerged beyond modernity, which rejects much of modernity and, and which has been, in some ways, the subject of continental philosophy for the last, uh, you know, 50 years or more. Mm-hmm. And, and we're, you're, you're, you're seeing the relative ideational exhaustion of that, right? I mean, critic being critical can only go so far, which the task now being, at least the way we see it at the Institute for Cultural Revolution, is, is a very important task of revalorizing modernity or, or uh, um, recognizing that the, the liberal values and the individual freedoms and the, and the rights and all of the gifts of modernity are not something that we can take for granted or they're just handed to us like a utility. It's something that we actually have to um, value, you know, mm-hmm. intergenerationally, right? And but what goes yeah. with that, yeah, what goes with uh, um, revalorizing modernity is also pointing out what comes after post-modernity, right? The post-progressive, as we call it, of course, in, integrals a synonym. So I'm just curious as you see other academics who may who may not be on our radar screen um, who are doing that. So I'll just say a little bit more. And that is, I noticed that some of the, the ones who are beginning to realize that modernity is what they call the great fact you know, the way I put it, it's like the, the Cambrian explosion and cultural evolution, you know, and, and, and so this, this way of, of talking about the great fact or the great enrichment of modernity, while realizing it's not the end of history, you know, it has all these negative externalities, we can't just be partisans of modernity, that time has passed. But the idea that we can leave it behind and it's going to remain as this freestanding font of civilization building values without further concern, I think is folly given what we can see in history. So I'm just curious whether you agree with that or whether you see other philosophers that are that are engaged in that task and how you think it might either be received or rejected within the current environment of academic professional philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to say. I mean... There's a there's a group of thinkers I'm not uh, terribly familiar with. I'd like to be more familiar with uh, that go under the name object oriented ontology. Um, uh, what is his name? Graham Harmon, uh, who's another uh, Heidegger scholar who sort of made a a shift into you know doing his own thing. Uh, who has has written about this um, and. Uh, by object oriented, part of the idea there is, uh, as I understand it, is a reconnection to like 
materiality. <laughs> it might sound so, uh, you know, obvious, but the tendency for uh, one of the, my favorite lines from a, I heard from a conference, uh, this scholar, he said, uh, philosophers, intellectual propensity toward abstraction borders on neurosis. <laughs> Love that line. Uh, cause I think it's true. Um, and you know, a lot of theories focus so much on discourse and, uh, in phenomenology, you know, internal experience, uh, and there, there can be a, a drift toward idealism. So the object-oriented ontologists uh, are, are trying to, you know, come come back to the materiality of the world uh, as you know starting point, uh, and in particular thinking about uh, technology and tool being and how that uh, shapes our uh, our consciousness. So that's uh, that's one that comes to mind. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not sure beyond that. One thing that's uh, hard is another way to answer. Uh, I think it was Jeff's question earlier, you know, what's the lay of the land? What's, what's emerging that's new is that there's so much, there's been so much fragmentation and so many, you know, subfields mushrooming that uh, as with uh, maybe an analogy is with the shift from uh, cable television to uh, streaming services, you know, where some people watch Netflix and some people watch, uh, HBO and, you know, it, it's a, it's a sort of bricolage that everybody's putting together, but no one has, or could have a view of the whole of what's going on. And so, you know, as in our media environment, you know, it can contribute to a kind of balkanization and fragmentation, uh, that makes it hard for, for any one person to know sort of where the discipline is going as a whole. Um, and so the way I see it is, you know, it's about finding uh, coalitions of the the close enough minded, uh, not like minded, but close enough minded uh, that uh, who are interested in taking a conscious and intentional role in, you know, pooling intellectual capital, as it were, to invest in uh, a new direction for the discipline. Uh, so, you know, that's something I'm interested in, in exploring, uh, and, you know, just in the middle of this conversation, starting to realize that's, uh, probably part of what I, what I really want to do, uh, is, is try to find close, uh, <laughs> a coalition, try and find such a coalition, uh, to build, uh, and to, you know, eventually start teaching courses, uh, along these lines. Uh, and that's another Thing I would love to, to get into is uh, how to go about teaching integral. Um, uh, as you mentioned a few moments ago, Steve, uh, you know, it's the importance of preserving academic philosophy as its own distinct thing, very far upstream from the culture, in part because, you know, as some people have argued, and I think as Ken argued in Trump in a post-truth world, you know, one way to make sense of what's happening is the mainstreaming of, of postmodernism. Uh, ideas that were, you know, just ideas decades ago, but uh, in a convoluted, long drawn out way, found their way into the culture and were, you know, used often hijacked by nefarious purposes for nefarious purposes, like somebody like Steve Bannon. Uh, so uh, practicing what I would call Republican postmodernism, but um, the teaching of uh, 
post-progressive or, or integral ideas or whatever we want to call them to college students and graduate students who are going to, you know, decades down the road, be in leadership positions uh, and shaping the culture. I think that's a really important long game to plan for and, uh, and invest in and keep an eye on. And how, how are you going about that, David? Are you teaching integral in any explicit way? I see you're doing a course on integral uh, Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, and how are, you, how are you approaching your students and how are they responding? Yeah. So I have been extremely reluctant to uh, do this. Uh, I've been teaching at uh, BC for uh, about eight, eight years now or so. And, you know, I, I develop my own courses and I, I, I teach what I want to teach uh, in, in those uh, new courses. Uh, but I don't know. I, I've just been more reticent to bring it in. Um, but I finally decided, you know what, like I've taught this great books course, you know, eight times and I'm just going to do it and see what happens. So the text that I'm using, this is actually the first semester that I'm, uh, I'm doing it. I'm using integral Christianity, as you mentioned by Paul Smith. And I decided to use this text because it presents developmental thinking in the context of a particular tradition. And it's a tradition that most of the students are familiar with. So BC is about 70% Catholic. And it also, it's not that, you know, abstract and, you know, it's not an academic tome. Uh, it's, you know, it's very accessible. And he provides nice sort of bite-sized little descriptions of each wave or, or mode of consciousness or worldview. And so I, I wanted to give them this at the start of the course. And I wanted to give it to them so that they would have a reference point, something to look for as they make their way through Plato and Aristotle and Genesis and Exodus and all, you know, it's a lot. But I also told them that it's what I wish I had been presented with when I was taking this course 20 years ago when I was your age, because I found uh, integral philosophy outside of my academic studies. And it proved to be the most influential thing for helping me make sense of the world. It's always hard to make sense of the world, whatever age you're at, <laughs> but geez, you guys don't have it easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right on. Well, yeah. Also then the, the students encountering, yeah. you know, this introductory text to a developmental perspective, mm -hmm. especially as couched, you know, within a, 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 a spiritual context, yeah. I'm curious as to um, both objections and the things that they liked and what were some of the reactions? Yeah. Yeah. So what I did, yeah, first of all, is I, I divided them up into groups of three or four and I assigned uh, a worldview to each group. And uh, I said, you know, choose a spokesperson who's going to you know, record stuff and, and speak for the group and, uh, you know, try and identify what are the main features uh, of this group. You know, how do they divert, divide the world up into saints and sinners or whatever? Uh, and can you think of examples from your own experience or from the culture uh, of, of this worldview or these, these values? And so we went kind of, you know, one by one. Uh, and, uh, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, 
uh, students who had the, the warrior consciousness uh, mentioned Trump. Um, so, you know, I, I asked, does that sound right to other people? Uh, and that's another important thing I would say too, is, you know, whenever somebody will put something forth, I will say, okay, uh, so you're saying blah, 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 mirror that back to them, a little active listening, and then ask, you know, does, does anybody want to support that? Or does anybody want to disagree? Uh, and that was one. Uh, but, uh, for the uh, progressive uh, view, uh, students, you know, mentioned um, the Black Lives Matter movement, kind of unsurprisingly. But afterward, I asked them, do you see any problems with this model? And uh, sure enough, uh, one of the girls raised her hand and, and said, well, it seems to be saying that people who are, uh, you know, at a, at a higher level are better than other people. And so uh, I was like, well, that sounds like a really good objection. Uh, does anybody, can anybody think of a, a way to defend the model from that objection? Uh, and somebody who had been studying the, uh, the warrior model said something interesting. They were like, well, you know, uh, like, one thing we said was that the warrior model can really come out in uh, in sports and athletics, uh, and but we wouldn't say that you know that means that you know a professional athlete is necessarily at uh, warrior consciousness. Uh, they just know how to access that. So they intuited the idea that you know, as Don Beck liked to say, these are types in people, and not types of people. Uh, and I kind of added to that and said, yeah, and. We could probably also say that, you know, you might have, you know, postmodern values, uh, but you can still be a jerk <laughs> and you could be you could have an average you know, center of gravity at uh, a quote unquote higher level. But if you haven't integrated the levels below that, um, you could be a worse person than somebody who's amber, but who is an integrated amber person uh, who sort of has their shit together so to speak. So that was something that was, uh, as it were, a teachable moment uh, that they connected with. Um, but one other student also said that in response to that girl's objection was, it sounds like that's what a postmodern objection would be to integral. So they saw it. And uh, a couple things I'll just briefly note, we can you know dive into it more deeply, is, is one, after we did this introductory lesson, I said to them, I, I'm not saying this model is true, but I do think it's useful and it may work for you to make sense of the course material we're working through, and it may not. But just keep an eye out as we make our way through the Bible, as we make our way into the modern thinkers. Do you see this, these worldviews and these values emerging? Uh, and do you see them beyond the material we're studying? Uh, so that was how I presented them, more as an offering and a tool. Uh, and, you know, not this is not necessarily the final word or the be-all, end-all. Um, and then the last point is that, uh, and that I would really love to talk more with the both of you about, is to what extent is there the potential for, for this generation to, as it were, develop more quickly? Um, uh, through various stages 
Uh, and how critical is it to inoculate them against what is increasingly, uh, you know, a, a prevalent uh, sort of mean green, um, uh, illiberal progressivism that is at odds with modernism and at odds with traditionalism. So those are just some preliminary thoughts uh, on yeah how it how it's gone and and some of my hopes for where it can go and what value it might have uh, beyond you know my own teaching. So in, in terms of trying to, to uh, assess the appetite for uh, you know the, the, the generation coming of age now, I don't know what you call them post millennials uh, or the generation after the millennial generation. I have two sons, one is 29 and the other is 15. So the 29 year old is, is a thoroughly in the millennial generation and shows it in, in many ways. And, and I can definitely tell that the post millennial 15 year old is, is, is not of that generation. There's significant differences. My older son though, because he grew up with uh, integral philosophy and knows it backwards and forwards, you know, he sort of lamented to me, he said, you know, dad, I mean, when he was a teenager, he said, you know, you've ruined me. All my friends, they got dreadlocks and they're fully into progressivism and embracing it. And I have to stand outside of it. You've, you've sort of ruined it for me. I can't just go along with the crowd. And we had a good laugh over that. But the most heartening thing that my post-millennial said, I mean, you know, again, I've, I've tried to share my point of view. And I think he generally uh, uh, has taken it up by assimilation, if not by direct uh, conversation. But I overheard him talking to one of his friends who says, you know, the far left and the far right, they just want to control you. I'm not going for either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, you know, he's somewhat inoculated. But I'm just curious as to, um, uh, you know, your current batch of students, where you see they are in that process of um, being born again within progressivism and, and adopting it as a kind of a religious identity or being skeptical of its uh, absolutistic uh, demands and claims. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think I'm going with generation alpha for what we're, what we're calling the, uh, the, right, the generations. Yeah. I've heard that in a couple places. I really yeah. like it. It's sticky. Uh, I really like it for just as a side note, I really like it for a variety of reasons. Um, but it's, you know, uh, it's restarting, it's beginning anew sort of in this new, uh, perhaps second axial age that we are, uh, moving, moving into or already in, uh, depending on your narrative. But uh, at least the students I teach, they seem to uh, intuitively grasp, for the most part, grasp the, uh, the way in which wokeism, so to speak, is stifling and uh, virtue signaling and a... Uh, a new form of conformism. Um, not that that's the entirety of it, but I think they are tuned in pretty well to those harmful features of it. And it's one reason that I intentionally, uh, and this is actually maybe a good transition to Jonathan Haidt's work, that I intentionally do a lot of work early in the semester to name those elephants in the room. That is the expectations that they may be bringing to what is permissible to talk about in the classroom because of what they've absorbed from the culture. Uh, and I try to reassure them that, you know, I am not that uh, 
liberal New England uh, professor who, you know, uh, will give you an F if you mention Jordan Peterson in your uh, philosophy paper, uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I try to signal very powerfully that, you know, if we can't talk about ideas freely here in a college classroom, gosh, uh, what, is, what does that say about, you know, the, the real tolerance level in our, our society for, for ideas that we disagree with? So my, my students seem... Uh, I actually think there's a pretty healthy balance among my students who sort of lean lean green uh, and lean, you know, more modernist uh, or even into traditional. Uh, it's one of the reasons it's a nice place to teach. Uh, and there's not too much militancy, as it were, for any particular uh, worldview, uh, which may actually be uh, an excess too much in, in the other direction. I mean, BC is a little, a little too buttoned up uh, and proper, uh, I think could use a little more, you know, uh, rowdiness, so to speak. Um, but, uh, I can speak a little bit to students that I don't teach. And that's just based on what I hear from colleagues who teach at small liberal arts colleges or who teach at public universities. And there the problem seems, uh, as much with the administrators in, uh, and some of the faculty in uh, colleges as with the students themselves. Uh, and that is administrators who work with students on uh, extracurricular activities and who are almost sort of uh, grooming them to, to uh, adopt or consolidate uh, a sort of, uh, you know, illiberal progressive view of the world and, you know, have that be their hammer uh, to, you know, uh, hit, you know, see everything as, as a nail to make everything see, see, see all nails in that respect. So, um, that does, does sound pretty prevalent and that's a big problem. And one organization at least that I see as trying to counter that, uh, and this comes back to Jeff's question about, you know, what, it, what is new or what's emerging Jonathan Haidt, uh, has, uh, helped to start an organization called heterodox Academy. And it's based on the goal of promoting viewpoint diversity. So it says diversity is important, but what's also important is viewpoint diversity, uh, not just diversity in the typical sense of identity markers. And the goal there is to try and, you know, through lesson plans, through readings, through talks on campuses, to try and create a more hospitable argument, uh, a hospitable environment, so that students can feel comfortable disagreeing and not worry that, you know, what they say on a, a message board or, or discussion board uh, or what they say in class could be, you know, recorded or repeated or sent viral and, you know, uh, smear their reputation or, or whatever. And especially at such a time where, you know, belonging needs in Maslow's hierarchy are, you know, what it's all about. They want to, they want to find their, their people in their community. Uh, so, I see that as a really positive organization, uh, trying to uh, as sort of antibodies that the culture has created to push back against the extent to which uh, sort of mean green has flexed its muscles very powerfully in the last few years in uh, academia. Yeah, it's yeah, a good book. The Heterodox Academy is a uh, a good moderating force, uh, yeah. definitely. But yeah. how effective they can be, you know, in the onslaught of of 
this movement is is still a question you know to be uh to be observed yeah yeah i mean one last thing i'll say too is that another another variable here i guess we could say you know from the the lower right quadrant uh is the economics of higher education and how you know students uh kind of visceral sense that you know the the system is uh somehow stacked against them uh whether it's the price of tuition or or student loans uh combined with you know other senses that our society is just not sustainable and is dysfunctional uh with regard to you know our politics coming apart and climate change you know becoming more uh more observable i think it's harder as a young person to have have a kind of basic natural confidence uh, in the institutions uh, of learning that are part of, you know, this whole social complex. So I, I suspect that's fueling a, a lot of the, the mean green uh, stuff and why it might, at least at, at face value, make sense of the world that they're growing up into. Yeah. It would be good to at least spend a little time um, uh, focusing on this excellent uh, paper, which we've just published on the Post Progressive Post. It's an excerpt uh, or, or kind of an abbreviated version, I don't know how you describe it, of, of a longer chapter, which you contributed to a forthcoming um, Rutledge academic anthology on climate change communication. Perhaps you can describe it better than me, but I'd love to, to hear a summary of that. Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, as a little bit of background, uh, you know, part of what my academic research was on was environmental ethics in general and climate ethics in particular. And, you know, climate ethicists have a lot of good arguments. Uh, you know, they draw on uh, the Kantian tradition and ethics. They draw on utilitarianism. They draw on virtue ethics, you know, from Aristotle and so on. And, you know, they, they all converge on like pretty much similar conclusions. Uh, we, you know, uh, the global north has obligations to the global south. Uh, we have obligations to future generations. You know, the wealthy countries should be doing a lot more uh, than they presently are. And that, uh, you know, extant climate agreements uh, and climate policies uh, are unjust in that sense. However, uh, ethics has not really penetrated uh, public policy uh, all that much. And as one of my colleagues who worked at the State Department, I mentioned before, said, one thing you have to understand is that when it comes to the public policy realm, economists have a lock, a total lock on value, hmm. on the concept of value. And there's sort of a tacit uh, hope or expectation, I think, on the part of a lot of academic ethicists that, you know, they publish these papers and somewhere along the line, they will find their way over the wall, <laughs> over the wall of the ivory tower and sort of trickle down, you know, into uh, public policy, into think tanks or whatnot. And it turns out that doesn't really happen <laughs> or it hasn't really appreciably happened enough uh, over the last few decades. So my thinking was, we're learning all this interesting stuff from the social sciences. There's a huge literature uh, on how people form their beliefs around climate change, uh, as well as a variety of you know, issues. 
Uh, and one, a great reference for, for listeners that might be interested is uh, the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication, where they actually break down, uh, they call it uh, Global Warming Six Americas. And they have six different profiles of uh, populations of what people believe about climate, whether it's you know not happening or whether it's you know the end of the world, you know the full range, the full spectrum. And so my thinking was, you know, how can we draw on this literature, this social scientific literature, to uh, message climate ethics and policies in such a way that will connect with as broad a diversity of worldviews and value systems as possible. And I'd been working on this for a long time. I had written uh, another related paper about it, uh, but then I re read your book, Steve, on developmental politics, and I found it a very useful way to reframe some of the social scientific literature. Uh, and one of the lines in your book that I, I really like, I uh, can't quote it off the top of my head, but was something like, one of the philosophical problems with social science is it purports to be value neutral. But in practice, it can often be prescriptive <laughs> because people will read this and say, oh, well, social scientists are you know, finding this, so it must be true. So you know, we should use this in a kind of uh, naive fashion. So uh, using a philosophical framework to contextualize the social science and drill down into the, uh, the cultural values that are at play in disagreements over climate is very useful. But what none of the social science that I'm familiar with has is the developmental component. Um, and Height's research in particular is extremely valuable. Uh, I think it, it wouldn't be striking such a nerve in the culture uh, as it is. And you know, becoming so widely adopted if it weren't tracking something true about people's moral psychology. However, uh, and Haidt was a former prog former progressive, and he you know has this story of you know uh, the progressive scales dropping from his eyes and how closed minded in his bubble, uh, how green he was in effect, um, and starting to appreciate the value of conservative thinking. However, I think he makes a mistake in inference, which is that. Because liberals are so, or progressives are so intolerant, we need to sort of tack back to the center and become centrists. And while that's good in that it's checking, you know, a kind of absolutistic form of progressivism, it only leaves us with the idea that, well, people just believe differently. And we can't rank one worldview or moral psychology as better or more truth apt or truth tracking uh, than another. And the whole idea of tolerating a diversity of viewpoints is itself a very progressive uh, idea and feeling into the lived experience of someone else's point of view is very much you know, a kind of progressive you know, mode of, of thinking and feeling. Uh, so uh, that was sort of a gap that I saw in how social science in general and Heights model in particular have been applied to climate. Uh, so I could say more, but that's kind of the, uh, the upshot of how can, how can this developmental mode of thinking help us message climate and better understand the real roots of disagreement and where we might find harmonies among groups that are at odds over the issue. Right. So much of the philosophy of modernity, at least in the, is, is sort of been colonized by social science, 
which has this stealth relationship to its normative influence mm -hmm. and how the, you know, even the progressives, they still have a, a hierarchical model. It's just a two-stage model, right? Everybody else down there and us up here with a more ethical view. So the thing about a developmental perspective and why height resists it or ignores it or tries to sidestep it is because it's, 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 it's normative dimensions. It's should, you know, the, the, the idea that some things are more developed than others and the development is good. You know, maturity is to be valued, although not in a simplistic, linear, hierarchical mm -hmm. way. But this idea that we can understand the universe without making any observations about the movement of value in the world is absurd. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the, with, when we bring in this developmental, the most challenging thing about it is that it's inescapably normative. And that yeah. freaks people out who are clinging to these uh, delusions of uh, you know, ethical objectivity, which, you know, don't exist because everything's moving. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'm glad you're, you're uh, picking on height. You know, we admire him. We see him as an ally, heterodox Academy and his, you know, defending modernity in his own way. So, so we, we like him, but we think ultimately that he's clinging to a modernity that's been superseded by the, um, the evolution of human thought. So yeah. I'm glad you're, you're writing about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things, you know, one, one thing is that, you know, I think that the Heights perspective wants to maximize civility. And it's such a tricky word because, of, like, of course, like, <laughs> of, of course, we want people to listen to each other more and, you know, not be reactive uh, and so on. Like, that's all great. I think the challenge is that at least the way it's framed, it often seems to be that, well, these people just believe this. And those people just believe that almost as if we're hardwired differently. And, you know, Heights model draws quite a bit on evolutionary. So, I mean, it's an evolutionarily based model with the idea that, you know, we, we sort of evolved these different moral taste buds uh, as the analogy he uses. Right, a reductionistic uh, evolutionary view, right? As opposed to a more uh, growth oriented one, like we try to represent. Well, anyway, yeah. yeah. That, and that's, and that's, and one, one, one thing that I think you're, perspective provides that is good is it challenges tribalism. You know, there's probably no concept that's become more prevalent, I think, in the way that we think about politics nowadays than tribalism. Uh, that's, that's identified as the problem, but also like as the reality, as if you're just in your tribe and that's just the way you are, and I'm just in my tribe and that's just the way it is. And the best we can hope for is civility. That we don't, uh, you know, we don't fight in the real world, obviously, but that we we fight less also in the virtual world, and you know those are good goals, but not sufficient, I think. One of the strengths of uh, of your book is that you show that these worldviews are actually now interdependent on one another, and that's a that's a new phenomenon. So how to rethink them so that they're not necessarily uh, at odds and in a kind of zero sum game but that their values are actually important. And this is crucial, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is that for, I think, a lot of the history of the environmental movement, the frame, the story has been very black and white, zero sum. You know, it's economic growth versus environmental sustainability. Uh, it's, you know, orange versus green, modernism versus postmodernism, so to speak. Uh, but I think, what we're finding is that we need not just both of those, 
but all three in the sense of those two and traditionalism. Uh, I mean, the notion of, uh, for instance, the values of tradition and loyalty and sanctity, the idea uh, of you know, a national project to you know, deal with climate and be a leader in the world, you know, uh, that's an inspiring national story that could bind us together as a people. Uh, and, you know, the notion of, you know, sacrificing for your country, uh, you know, those are really powerful and deeply rooted values and older and more primal values than modern and postmodern uh, ones. And so, you know, those are, those are powerful assets to draw on as part of an overall approach to dealing with the problem like climate. Yes, we need, you know, uh, new energy systems. Yes, we need engineers who think differently. Yes, we need different economic incentives and policies. Yes, we need activists. But you know, there's also an important place for, uh, I think, traditionalism in the overall way we think and talk and vote uh, around climate. And in a way that's not manipulative and condescending. You know, another thing you mentioned in your book that I like is that some framing approaches, uh, some persuasion strategies, like George Lakoff's framing uh, approach. There's kind of an understanding there that like we have the right values that is progressives <laughs> and, you know, social conservatives have the wrong values. But if we're really clever and, you know, use the right words, then like they won't hate us as much and maybe they'll, you know, vote. Uh, some of them will vote for progressive stuff. And people can smell that. Uh, they can smell when they're being played. This is this is sort of a, maybe taking us a little off track, but I, I know that Jeff, you have cited Pete Buttigieg as a, a potential integral uh, thinker. I think Steve disagrees. Uh, I think we disagreed about that the last time we talked. But I'm I'm like you, Jeff. My heroes are Ken Wilber and Barack Obama, uh, and I've I've never had a reaction to a politician uh, like Obama until. Uh, Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. I think he has a way of speaking to uh, traditionalists in a way that's genuine, in a way that opens them up, and in a way that can potentially grow them, at least some of them. Uh, he gets it. He, he feels it too. Yeah. Yeah. It's not coming from a place of manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And, and I see more and more people that you know, just have that fragrance of integral where they, they just have, a, you know, to use the classic expression, they have a flex flow mind. They can take mm -hmm. multiple perspectives. They have a big capacity for not just seeing, but feeling into the different worldviews that people have. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I think too, that uh, to come back to some of the, the ideas from the paper, I think somewhat in the same way that the erosion of traditional communities in rural America was driven in part by globalization that pushed them to someone like Trump. Uh, I think that as the effects of climate become more visible and more local, the issue will become more personal. They'll start thinking about, oh, the land my family and my ancestors have lived on for generations is now under threat. You know, my, my children and their children may not be able to live here. That's something that I think is going to start shifting folks with that perspective to treat climate more seriously. And it's just another reason why 
the way we talk and message climate from an ethical perspective, from a policy perspective, I think needs to uh, incorporate that reality and and take take the foot off the gas of you know the the usual you know screw the fossil fuel companies and like the usual kind of you know uh, rhetoric that uh, often comes out of the environmental community. Right. Uh, yeah. So, Steve, anything else you want to hit? Well, on I know the, that um, David wanted to um, to ask us uh, a question or or two, and so let's uh, let's give him a chance to do that. Yeah, great. Uh, so, wow, this is a thrill. I mean, just as a side note, this is a thrill. I've been listening to uh, the Daily Evolver for for years. Uh, oh. Never never imagined I would I would be a guest uh, and get to ask questions uh, on the air. Uh, but wonderful. I, uh, I'm really interested to hear what both of you think about uh, where the integral or post-progressive uh, movement is going. So I guess two related questions. How, has, how do you see it having evolved over the last decade or so? Uh, and where do you see it going? My sense is that the pump is primed for uh, a sort of... Uh, integral renaissance or integral 2.0 or 3.0 or wherever we are. And I just, I just sense from a variety of different directions, a number of thinkers who are, you know, doing their own thing, who have some connection to the integral community or some history with it. Uh, so it seems like a kind of, you know, let uh, a thousand flowers bloom type of a period with different iterations of integral. So that, that's just some of my rough sense. Uh, but I'm curious to hear, uh, your view of it, given that you're you're both more plugged into it than I am. Yeah, well, I, I could I could just sort of chart out how I've seen it evolve since I've been a part of it since 2003. So going on 20 years here now, and at that point, uh, 2003 2007 was when I was working with the Integral Institute. And this is when Ken Wilber was really coming out of his you know, writing mode and going more public. And we did these series of seminars. We did, I don't know, 30 or, 30 or 40 different seminars uh, where people would come from all over the world and spend a week. Ken would come twice. We would do integral psychology, integral business, integral spirituality, integral life practice. And those brought a lot of people together. So what we were trying to do with the Integral Institute was to sort of civilize the integral movement and give it shape and a coherence. And it, I don't think it wanted that, mm. actually, at the time. I think people and, and I see it. It's, it's a little bit like you were saying, David, about going from the three networks to, you know, HBO and all of these various. There's just mm -hmm. a proliferation of ideas. And I know a lot of people who are dedicated in integralists, and they believe all kinds of things. Some of them won't get vaccinated. Some of them have alien friends. Some of them think the world's gonna end in 10 years, max. I mean, they have all sorts of, of points of view. And I don't think there was any civilizing of that that was going to be possible. Mm. So that's sort of the self-identified integral folks is that everybody is out doing their podcast, having each other on their podcast, reading each other's stuff, criticizing it. There's a lot of fruitful fighting as, as well as friending going on mm -hmm. in the integral world. So that's the sort of self-identified people who know about integral. 
Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say is that integral consciousness is arising under its own power in the world at large among people who have no idea about Steve McIntosh or Ken Wilber or the Institute for Cultural Evolution or anything. And that's just this, you know, I I often say boredom is the great engine of evolution. They're just bored with these, um, you know, totalitarian worldviews that they've been given and, you know, all of the defenses they have against you know, modernism or traditionalism. And I see that really a lot among young people. Uh, I do think that our grandchildren will roll their eyes at a lot of the culture war that we're fighting right now, because it's kind of obvious that everybody has a piece of the truth. I mean, it's becoming more and more obvious. And, you know, with Trump and with, um, this sort of consolidation and self-identification among traditionalists and MAGA. I think the culture has been served notice. I have. I mean, I thought we were going to be able to go on without them, if they were going to be left to the ash heap of history. Uh, But not so fast. And I'm glad. I'm happy about that. Because what they're saying is you can't go forward until you incorporate our values, Mm. or at least what's important about our values. Mm-hmm. And um, again, welcome to the culture war, which I'm a lot friendlier to than a lot of people, even in the integral world. I, I think there's a differentiation that is happening in the culture that is prior to the integration that will happen. And that we, we, have, a, we, we have a long ways to go in the culture war. I don't know how long, but we have a ways to go because we still don't understand each other. Uh, but the idea that arguing and fighting with each other makes us understand each other less is false kicking and screaming, we do open our minds. They get forced open through yeah. the fight itself. And so I'm, as long as we're not using clubs and guns, I'm pretty friendly to it. And, uh, uh, you know, like you said, let many flowers blossom. I, I, I think that's a great point, you know, like culture wars are a good problem to have. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in, the grand, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, especially uh, when we're just sort of assassinating each other on Twitter. <laughs> you know. So, so let me take a, a crack at um, your question about sort of where we are in history. I think that if our theoretical construct of worldviews, right, being these intergenerational large-scale value agreement that have a kind of a systemic reality in the intersubjective realm, right, in the we space, there's a real system there, and it's not just a whole bunch of people's thoughts or it's not just a bunch of artifacts. It has this kind of freestanding um, uh, and, and it, it exhibits this evolutionary, it recapitulates or, or expresses the structure of emergence that we see in biological and cosmological evolution. So there's this kind of Russian doll effect where, mm-hmm. where this next stage is building upon the, the, the platform of success provided by, you know, the fruition of the previous uh, level of development. So if that's true, if these worldviews are real entities and indeed the basic units of culture, then a, a big factor in the larger historical scheme of things is, is the looming into view of the progressive postmodern worldview as a worldview, right? Up until very recently, it was, it was compartmentalized, right? People didn't connect the dots. There was 
progressive spirituality, which, you know, new age spirituality, which was once a major cultural force and economic yeah. force in the, uh, the 90s and the aughts, but has since basically faded away as a cult, sort of dead in the water culturally at this point, at least if you look at conferences and, you know, other kinds of media and the books being published and the, the quality of discourse has gone way down, much more commercial, much more magical. Then there was the far left, right, or the environmental movement. And even though there was there was some kind of vague sense that there was an affinity between these different aspects of the progressive postmodern worldview, um, with the ideology of anti-racism kind of coming to the fore and gaining much more uh, uh, political and social success than any of these other components, ideological components of, of progressivism, that has, uh, you know, it's, it's talking about an elephant in the room. And the elephant is just, you know, busted down the door and, and uh, you know, captured many of America's um, institutions for good and bad, right? Progressivism is not all bad. Um, but it, especially since 2020, the fact that progressivism is here, that it has major power, that it's, that it's got the potential to gain a lot more political power, that its cultural power seems unstoppable, that the clerisy, you know, the sort of the intellectual and cultural elite have been largely co-opted or, or, you know, recruited by it. This is a, a, a hinge of history we're living in right in this year, right in 2021. Green looms large, right? And we see it as a threat for the first time, not just some cute little leftism we can put in a corner. Yeah. That is the big event which this philosophy has been waiting to take the stage uh, uh, for, right? In other words, you know, when I first was uh, attracted to this was in the 90s when Paul Ray in 1995 uh, published his sociology about the cultural creatives. And we thought, that's us. That names our culture in a way that hasn't been named before. And just the naming of it brought it into an existence, you know, to a degree. But now it is evident to the mainstream, and indeed many of the, of the influential people in the United States are fully aligned with it. And so that creates a powerfully problematic life condition that can help uh, uh, stimulate the emergence of this next great phase of human history, which we hope and claim that this integral or post-progressive worldview will be, and uh, so just last week, I presented this, these ideas to a group of uh, um, business people at the Young Presidents Organization right, right. in Denver. You know, it was a pretty big, pretty big audience. They're pretty well engaged. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, they were looking for answers, right? Some were clinging to traditionalism. Some were kind of offended progressives. But the majority were pragmatists. You know, and they realized they weren't so much politically ideological as they were caring about stability of American society and a basic social solidarity that could underpin a functional democracy. And so they were alive to this, these negative life conditions in a way that I haven't seen previous mainstream audience be in the years ahead. So I think that this is our golden moment uh, in the sense that we have a solution to a wicked problem which does threaten uh, america's democracy and culture so uh focusing where we're focusing on now we hope that this post-progressive framing and the, the 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 momentum that we have with the institute for cultural evolution can be you know a, a, a reasonable part of the birthing of this next worldview obviously there's more to it than our line that that's leading into it but um we do uh, uh hope that this this project of revalorizing modernity and showing what comes after post-modernity, that that's a, uh, a winning combination that will hopefully gain traction in the years ahead. And so we're poised 
uh, yeah. to really take advantage of those situations. Yeah. Sounds like uh, a number of those audience members may have been part of the, uh, the exhausted majority uh, from the uh, named from the hidden tribes uh, report. So uh, that's, I think that's an interesting cohort to engage uh, people who are aware of all these problems, but don't have a, an inspiring and motivating and coherent worldview to help them make sense. And, and so they have a better answer than just, uh, oh, there's extremes on the right and left, and I'm just going to, you know, I don't like politics. I'm going to stay away from this. So they, ha they have something positive uh, that they can connect with. Um, yeah, that sounds, that sounds really promising. Yeah. Right on. Where'd so David, go? tell us where we can view your, uh, or listen to your podcast, Wisdom at Work. Yeah. So it's on, uh, it's on Apple podcasts. You can find it on Spotify. Uh, you can also go to my website. It's www.davidystory.com. Uh, so I, my podcast is ho hosted there, my blog. Uh, so any, anything you can find there. Great. Yeah. yeah. And I'm also, I also should say, you know, I'm always on the lookout for, for new folks to interview. I interview people who don't necessarily have a, a background in academic philosophy, but whose work has, you know, some, some ethical or, or philosophical component. Uh, and uh, so I'm pretty, you know, pretty broad about who, who I like to interview. So if anyone's interested in uh, being a guest or recommending a guest, uh, please, please let me know. Great. We'll, we'll do. Yeah. And I would also point people to your article in the Post-Progressive Post, Why We Will Grow Together or Grow Apart, Cultural Intelligence and Climate Change. And it's terrific. And I encourage everybody to check it out. And uh, thank you, Steve McIntosh. Thank you, David Story, for joining me for another edition of Post-Progressive Inquiries. We'll see you next time. Thanks for having me.